So let's get this web conference underway. We'll start with a karakia. Unuhia te pō te pō whiri marama. Tomakia te ao te ao whatatangata. Tātai ki runga, tātai ki raro. Tātai ahurau, himie, huie, tai ki e. Kia ora tātou. Haere mai and welcome to the River Restoration Field Trip Web Conference. So this field trip has been supported by the Department of Conservation along with many other people because this project is a lot of people coming together to help out to restore Tihoeiri, Polaris Awa. And if you're not sure about the project, have a look at the LEARNS website because there is heaps of information on there. So, ko Shelley Taku Ingwa, your LEARNS Kaiarahi or guide on this field trip. And welcome along to our speaking school this morning, which is Southwall School. And of course, a big welcome to any, any listening schools as well this morning. And we've got our experts with us this morning. We've got Anna and Lewis, and I'll give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. So, Lewis, we'll start with you. My name is Lewis Smith. Um, I come from the iwi in the top of the South Island here called Ngāti Kuia. Um, I work for my iwi. My role is uh, kaitiaki taio, so I work in the environmental space. Um, I also um, am a carver of a local stone uh, from our awa, Te Hoere, um, which is called Pākohi. Uh, and I'm also involved in our restoration project uh, for the Te Hoere Awa. Uh, I'm on the steering group for that, so I'm involved in that also. So, yeah, that's me. Kia ora. Kia ora, Lewis. And Anna. Kia ora koutou. Uh, no airana me koterana o kutupuna. E whānau mai o ki whakatū. E tipu aki o i raro i te maru o te mauna o Maumatapu. Uh, ki te taha o ngā wai o Mahitahi. E noho ana o ki wairo. Ko tēnei taku mihi ki ngā tangata whenua o te rohinei. Ka mihi hoki o ki ngā tohu o te rohinei. Ko ana toku ingoa. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, kia ora, my name's Anna. Um, I'm freshwater educator and um, an environmental educator, really, for the Marlborough District Council. Uh, and so I um, spend a lot of time working with the community and schools here in Marlborough. Um, yeah, I have a background in freshwater ecology. Um and sustainability education. Yeah, so happy to be here today. Hopefully I can answer some of your questions. I'm sure you will. Kia ora, Anna. And we'll give our speaking school, Southwall School, a chance to uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you've been working on and what's got you interested in this field trip. Kia ora. we're Southern School in Hamilton and we've just got a student who's going to talk to you brief, briefly about what we've been doing and, and how, how we came to even be here this morning. So Caleb's going to have a chat. Awesome. 
Hi, my name is Caleb. Um, in our, we've looked, we've been looking at the subject kaitiaki, guardianship of guardianship of ourselves, our environment, and our family stories that we all shared. Earlier in the year, we went to Tongariro, Tongariro National Park, also to Mangatauri, the largest fenced-off pest control area in New Zealand. And this will be interesting. Thanks for sharing. Kia ora. Thank you. Really good to get that intro and, and to hear about what you've been studying. And fantastic to hear that you've been out and about in your environment. There's no better way to appreciate your environment than to get out there and explore it and see why you want to protect it and become good kaitiaki. So well done for that. Um, I know our listening schools have got lots of interest in their environment in our as well. And I just want to ask you, um, put your hand up if you know the name of your local awa and the meaning of it. I want to see some hands. I can see a few hands there. Good stuff. So if you don't know the name of your local awa or what it means, um, that's something that you could research. And thinking about the health of your awa, we could do a little um, sharing, thinking about the health of our awa. And I want you to put your hand up and we're going to use a scale. So one being not so healthy and five being absolutely awesome. I'm willing to swim in it. I could drink from it. My hour, I think, is, is super healthy. So let's see how healthy your hour is. So this is our listening schools and speaking school and our experts, if you like. Think about how healthy your nearest hour is. I'm thinking about mine and I'm thinking it's kind of middling. So it's about a three. So I'm looking around to see what other people are seeing. So Lewis has got four, so it's pretty healthy. And is three. And Southern School, you've got two. You can see some fours and threes. Can I see any fives there? Give us a big wave if you've got a five. Oh, I can see some. That's fantastic. <laughs> Good stuff. Okay, so that's something to think about. It's something that you could try and improve perhaps from a, a three to a four or a four to a five. And if it's already five, what can we do to help keep it that way? So that's something you can be thinking about today and in the future. Kia ora, thanks for for that experiment there. It's really interesting to see how healthy a bunch of awa are, are around Aotearoa. So we'll get underway with our questions. And if you can remember to come up nice and close to the microphone, the laptop, and say your first name so we know who we're talking to. So we'll start with question number one, please. Okay. Are there any rivers in the North Island that were formed by a glacier? If so, where? Kia ora. Either of our experts want to answer that one? Know anything about that question? I know you're both South Island based, so it might be a tricky one. Yeah, I'll have a, I'll have a try, Shelley. I, I saw this question come in and yeah, I'm really South Island, so <laughs> but I, I had a quick Google. There's some quite good information on Teara. Um, which is a you know, really good online encyclopedia about glacial periods and uh, glacial 
uh, landscape. So it might pay to have a look there. Um, the information I found, it's, it, the huge glaciers, we're in, all in the Southern Alps and the South Island where the real big glacial landscapes formed, but it did say that there were small glaciers uh, in the North Island's Tararua range, as well as the central volcanoes. So there were little glaciers there, but, but whether they formed those glacial landscapes or not, I'm not sure, because it's, yeah, it's more like plateaus and yeah. So you might have to do a little bit more investigating there. <laughs> That's the best I can do, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. I've, I've done lots of climbing and things in uh, Te Waipanamu, the South Island, but not so much in the North Island. And I'm really familiar with those U-shaped valleys. And they've been carved out by glaciers, particularly in Fiordland, and they're awesome for climbing because they're really steep. Whereas your, your typical river valley that hasn't been carved out by glacier is V-shaped. So if all your valleys from rivers are V-shaped, they haven't been probably formed by glaciers, but it's a little bit tricky because there's lots of erosion and things as well. So I'd encourage you to do a bit more research there. All right, that brings us to question number two, please. Uh, hello, I'm Carter. And um, was there one earthquake that created the Waikato River? And if so, where did this happen? Kia ora, Carter. Another tricky questions for um, our experts that perhaps don't know much about your awa in your area, but we'll give it a go. What what do we find out? Anna, did you discover anything there or, or some um, sites that might be helpful in finding the answer? Yeah, I did. Um, again, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm a real Te Waipunamu person, <laughs> but um, like, I don't know if there was one specific earthquake that formed the Waikato River, but most rivers form along fault lines because water flows where it can find a little a, a little weakness in the ground. It moves to the lowest level and then it scours out. So like locally, our Wairo River is forming along the Alpine Fault. So it, it finds the, the water finds the fault line and that's where it moves along and then it carves the valley out from there. So, um, and, and I think most rivers in New Zealand will be along a fault line where the rocks maybe been under pressure and, and yeah, then the water um, gradually carves it out. Um, the Waikato River, it's a long river. It probably wasn't one earthquake, but it's possible that it, it probably follows a fault line down, maybe. It finds the lowest point, the water, so yeah. Um, have a look on... Um, there's been a few. There's a few questions about the Waikato River, and I know there's some really good resources on Science Learning Hub where they look at um, the Waikato in, in detail. So maybe try having a look there. Good stuff. And I'm just thinking about fault lines. If you want to know where there are fault lines, you can have a look on the GNS website and do some research and see whether there are fault lines that match up with where the awa is and you might be able to find out yourself rather than just looking straight for the answer look for some evidence in the landscape so that's a really cool question kia ora Carter. and question number three now please hi my name is samuel and my question is um how do people do a thorough test 
of the rivers to make sure all the water is clean and safe to swim in. Kia Samuel. Anna, I know you do lots of, of water testing. Yeah, kia ora Samuel. Um, yeah, I can talk about uh, what our council does here in Marlborough, and I think most councils or all councils around the country do it in terms of um, testing whether water is safe for swimming. So in the summer months, so between November and March, every week um, the council scientists go out and sample water at the popular swimming spots and then they test it for bacteria in the water um, because it's when they're finding lots of bacteria in the water, it's a bacteria called E. coli that they look for in fresh water, that can, um, the old E. coli itself doesn't usually make you sick, but when it's there, it can indicate that there's basically poo in the river. And so there might be other nasty bugs that might make you sick as well. So really it's testing to see if poo's got in there from warm blooded animals so like from cows or sheep or humans or whatever, and seeing if the levels of bacteria are so high that it would be unsafe to swim in. Um, and when, if the levels are high, then they'll, they'll sometimes have to put up signs or let people know that it's not safe for swimming. Um, and that quite often it corresponds with when there's been rainfall because the rain comes down and it washes any poo into the river with the rainfall. And so the few days after it rains, if, it's, if there's going to be bacteria, that's often when they're at their highest. Um, yeah, so that's what the council does. I don't know if um, Lewis would like to talk about cultural monitoring. It's yeah, because that, that happens as well. Yeah, so we do um, cultural monitoring, which is more of a, um, a perception-based uh, monitoring. So it's about going to the hour and just sitting there and observing um, you know, how clear is the water, um, you know, we, we sit and we do like, we count how many of a particular species we see within a half an hour time bracket. Um, you know, what does it smell like? Um, uh, what, um, what species are there that should be there? What species aren't there that should be there? Um, it's all about it's really about uh, perception-based monitoring, as we call it cultural monitoring. So that, that's the sort of thing that we do. Kia ora, Lewis. And that's something you guys can do. Have a, have a look at the videos from the field trip because there is a video with Ariana where she explains how to do cultural monitoring. And what's really cool about it is that you get to go and spend time by your own hour. And if you do that often, you get to see the different moods of your hour and monitor its health. So it was really cool to be um, up on the field trip to Huiri and uh, look at what mood she was in when we were there. And the river was really high. So the hour was in flood and it was quite interesting when I put together the Google Earth tour to see some of the images when she wasn't in flood and how different it looks, the color, uh, the levels, the beaches that you can no longer see. It was really, really interesting. So I encourage you to, to do some monitoring of your own hour and get to see it in different states. And it'll give you an idea of how you can look after it as well. Fantastic question. And we're now up to question four now, please. 
And so the fourth question is, can you drink from the Waikato River? I'm not sure, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um, I know water people do drink water from the Waikato River. It goes into the town water supplies, but it gets treated first to make sure that it removes any nasties that could make you sick. And the problem with those nasties is um, you can't tell if they're there or not just by looking at it, at the water, because they're so small that um, you just can't see them. So even if it was... If it was or wasn't safe, you're just not sure. And um, so, um, and what I understand about the Waikato is it's got quite a lot of um, stuff going on along the hour. That's yeah, it's it's not like it's just flowing through native bush and um, wouldn't have any impacts on it. So I would be a, a little bit concerned to just go and drink from it. But then um, the best way to to find out would be to talk to some local people who live live there, especially in the upper reaches around the, the top parts of the hour where there maybe aren't so many um, impacts and kinds of pollution going in. Maybe there are some parts of it that are safe. Kia ora, and, and put your hand up if you are happy to drink from your, your local hour. I'm not gonna put up my hand because <laughs> I live in a, an urban area and I don't really trust the water quality. Right, yeah, I was going to say, um, my general way of thinking when it comes to drinking from the hour is, um, is generally away from any human modification. So the further up you go into the Nahiri and the native bush where there aren't farms and forestry and people's houses, uh, that's a, generally a, a good place to drink water from. I wouldn't go um, anywhere downstream from uh, human modification. Yep, that's a really good point. Thanks, Lewis. And put your hand up if you're happy to swim in your hour, because you don't you don't necessarily drink when you're swimming. Hopefully, <laughs> you might absorb a little bit, but you could probably put up with a little bit. So I'm I'm happy swimming in my hour, in the estuary and at the beach because I live on the coast here. Good to see some hands. A little bit a bit sad to see that some people haven't got their hands up. It might be something that you. Um, can do it. Can do something about that uh, means it. It would be healthier to be able to swim in your hour. Something to think about. Good stuff. Okay, question number five now, please. Kia ora. My name is Oliver. And my question, one of my questions is, on average, how many animals die each year from polluted water and which species are most commonly affected? Kia ora, Oliver. And I read this question and I thought, oh, that might be tricky to give an exact number to, but uh, I'm sure we've got some ideas. Lewis or Anna? Shall I go? Um, yeah. I don't know anyone who collects that data of the number of animals that die, like that are dying. Like I can't tell you that a certain number in New Zealand die each year. I do know the main animals that die in our in our hours in our hour is um, fish. So um, I don't know if you're thinking about fish or whether you're thinking about 
more like animals like dogs or cows or that kind of thing. But I know you do hear of lots of fish dying in rivers that get too warm. Um, and usually it's because the, the rivers don't have enough oxygen in them. So um, that can happen when the river gets um, too warm in the summer, um, the water isn't moving much, it's not mixing, um, and the oxygen levels get too low. And the fish that are in the river, they need to breathe the oxygen in the water. And when, so when it gets warm and the oxygen isn't there in the water, it moves out into the air, those fish basically suffocate because there's not enough air oxygen there for them to breathe. So you hear about that happening um, and you can hear about um, hundreds of um, eels dying when the water just gets too hot for them. Um, the other animals that you hear of dying in, in um, rivers in New Zealand are dogs sometimes when they eat some algae, some slime that's toxic. And we've been getting that happening more and more in, in some of our rivers, especially down um, the bottom parts near the coast. Um, and in the summer, or when there hasn't been um, a, a flood through to wash the, clean out the river a bit, the slime builds up and it can have these really nasty toxins in that can make dogs die. When uh, dogs, you know how dogs like eating things that are, that are kind of stinky? Um, the dogs will go and eat the stinky slime and it's got a neurotoxin in it, which basically means they die really suddenly. Um, so you do sometimes hear of that and that's a bit of a, well, obviously a big problem. Um, and apart from that, um, yeah, I don't know of any, I, most animals, they will avoid water that will kill them or make them sick. So if they can get away from it, then they will. So same goes for um the fish, if they can move away from that polluted water, they will, rather than staying there and dying. It's just when they don't have any option, when they can't get away. Yeah. Kia ora, Anna. And Lewis, any evidence that you've seen? Yeah, I wouldn't be able to give you a statistic in regards to how many die, but we, um, you know, we traditionally use our awa to gather mahinga kai, um, specifically tuna, so the eel. Um, and, 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 and adding to the, you know, um, lack of oxygen, that, that can also be attributed to, um, you know, accidents caused by humans. So things when, um, you know, roadside spray gets spilled um, into a, a stream or a creek. Uh, there's even been things around, you know, uh, winery uh, waste um, getting, getting spilled into streams and, 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 um, and then affecting the oxygen in the streams and killing mass killing uh, tuna. And so um, for us, one being a mahinga kai, uh, the species that we uh, traditionally harvest, but also that we are kaitiaki, it's really important um, to, to note the, those things and, 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 and keep tabs on our um, species. And, and that goes back for us to cultural monitoring as well, um, going to places where we traditionally gather tuna, uh, uh, eels, um, and, and doing this, you know, the, the, the perception monitoring when we, we're counting how many tuna we see within a certain amount of time and if that's normal or not. Um, but yeah, that's me. Kia ora. Kia ora. And you might want to add to the chat window if you've had any experience of that yourself with your hour um, or seen any signs to let you know when the, the hour is not so healthy or you have to keep dogs away from an algal bloom or something like that. If you could share some of your experiences there, it'd be good to, to know whether that's happening in your area. But in the meantime, 
Uh, we'll move to question number six, please. What are some of the ways to, to treat polluted water? Kia ora. Either Anna or Lewis. Oh, would you like to go, Lewis? Or do you want me to go first? <laughs> me? Okay. You go for it. Um, I was just going to say, it's really hard. Once a river gets polluted, it's really hard. It's easier to stop the pollution getting in in the first place than it is to deal with it once it's in there. But the best solution is a natural solution, and it's our wetlands. So New Zealand used to have loads of wetlands um, areas, so boggy sort of areas beside rivers. Um, and now we hardly have any left. They've all been drained, or well, most of them have been drained for farmland and and towns and things but wetlands are these natural ways to clean up our fresh water they they get called the kidneys of the um the catchment because like the kidneys in our body that that clean our blood they um the the wetlands clean the rivers and clean the water naturally so the water goes in there and it can settle and nutrients get taken out and the mud and silt get trapped there and wetlands are also really amazing places with, um, for plants and animals to live. So it helps our biodiversity as well. So I would say if you're wanting to help, um, first try and keep the pollution out and second, um, try and get some of our wetlands back, maybe um, get involved. Some wetlands are being restored um, or make sure that the wetlands that are there are healthy and are working well. Yeah, I, I, all I would add to that would be, and same thing, um, going to the source of the issue before it becomes an issue and correcting it there and restoration of wetlands. So we, Ngāti Koia, um, are part of our own, uh, on our own lands, uh, restoring our, our wetlands um, with native planting. Um, we have... Uh, a big issue in our is sediment buildup, and and also with human modification. Again, we've lost a lot of our um, wetlands, so it's about yeah restoring our wetlands. Kia ora. Kia ora. and and put your hand up if you have a wetland by your hour that you know of, because a lot of the time they've been drained or built on. I don't see. Oh, I see a few hands from one of our listening schools. We few. Be good to see more hands, wouldn't it? Apparently, I think it's something like 90 or 95% of our wetlands in Aotearoa have been drained or destroyed or built on and they're no longer there. They're, they're not the kidneys that they once were, filtering all those things. So what we have to go and do is add the filters. So that's what a lot of farmers are actually doing is, is planting beside rivers so the plants can do the filtering when there isn't a wetland. So that's something you can you can do as well. Okay, question seven, please. What are the introduced species of trout and why were they introduced? Kia ora. I don't know a lot about trout because I don't do any fishing, but um our experts might do. Yeah, I know, I definitely know more about our native fish than our introduced species. Um, with trout, the ones I know of are brown trout and rainbow trout. 
I'm not a fish person though. So, <laughs> but there's also sam salmon, which are in the same, they're all in the same family together. And they were bought here by um, when people came here from England, they basically were a bit homesick for mother England. And they thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we, wouldn't it be nice if we could catch a trout um, just like we do back home. So they bought the trout here and um, they didn't just bring one here. They set up whole groups, acclimatization societies around making sure that not only did they, that they'd come here, but that they'd thrive here. Um, and there were a lot of, there was a lot of um, politicking around it. And our trout, introduced trout actually had way more protection under the law than our really precious and struggling native fish do. And trout actually um, also eat our native fish. So they're actually, there's, um, it's quite a contentious issue. And there's a lot of um, really interesting stuff around the politics of it, the laws around it. Um, so if you wanted to look into that, it's a really fascinating area. Um, yeah. What else was I going to say about that? I think that was about it, actually. <laughs> yeah. So go and do, do a bit more reading about it. Yeah, so what, what, what I know is that, 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 that trout were introduced as a sport sport fish. Um, and and again, they're not, for some reason, this has been a question I've asked, but for some reason, uh, they aren't, like, unlike other introduced species, they aren't considered a pest. Um, although I myself personally would consider introduced species like that a pest one because of they, they, they do eat out our native fish and they, you know, when you, um, the ecosystem is um, a very fine balance. So when you introduce something into the ecosystem in the space of something that traditionally lives there, it throws it out of balance. Um, you know, you find that they, um, aside from eating the fish themselves, they sort of, they can take up their spot in the ecosystem by eating the same things that our species eat. Um, it's yeah, it's a, 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 people uh, feel quite strongly about it though. You know, because of the um, sport fishing, you know, it's their lifestyle almost to go up their rivers and fish. So um, it's a hard one to find a balance, and you know, you're probably either on one side of the argument or not in, in regards to introduced species. But the way I feel personally is as kaitiaki, we have a responsibility um, to protect our indigenous flora and fauna. So, yeah. Kia ora. And it's a little bit the same on land with the likes of deer um, and other introduced predators, which have caused a real problem. So I guess if you're um, into fishing or hunting, um, being able to catch those introduced species and try and help reduce their numbers is maybe something that you can do and, and get a feed, get some kai at the same time. So that might help restore a bit of the balance. Put your hand up if you have caught a, a trout, if you've been trout fishing. Oh, I can see lots of hands there. Good stuff. Okay. So that might help reduce the trout numbers and uh, help our native, native fish. And I want you to think about what native fish live in your awa, and you could share that in the chat window. So, so what, what's your awa known for with native species? Kia ora, and we'll move to question eight, please.
Hi, my name is Fiona, and uh, my question is: What what part of the Waikato River is the most polluted, and why? Oh, good question. Bit of a tricky question because Waikato is very long. <laughs> it's a long hour. Any ideas? Sure, Fiona. Um, I would suggest you get in touch with someone from the re your regional council to ask them that question because they'll know their area best. Um, I don't know enough about it to help you with it. So I would get in touch with the council. They will definitely have um, some information for you. Uh, and you can also look on the Science Learning Hub and search Waikato River, and you might find some information on there too. Yeah, and, and Lois, there's, there's patterns that affect the health of our awa. So in terms of te hoiri, uh, what what parts of that awa are the healthiest and what parts aren't um, and why? Um, for me, it's pretty simple. Um, it's anywhere that humans are and that humans modify things, uh, the less healthy it becomes. So going back to what I said before, it's the further away from people you go, the healthier uh, the was. Further upstream you go into the mountain, into the moment, into the nahiri and the forest. Um, yeah. That's how I see it. Hmm. And and you guys might be able to therefore tell yourselves which part of Waikato is healthiest and which part isn't. So have a look ar around the environment around the river as well. And question number nine now, please. Hi, my name's Ruby. What do dams do to the river? Oh, good question. What a Ruby. Um, so I think the biggest problem with dams, um, obviously we put, us humans put them in because we either want to make electricity from them or we want to use uh, the water for some reason, the water supply. But the problem is our fish, especially our beautiful native fish, they use the river like a highway and for their, their life cycle, they have to go between the river and the sea. So they're going back and forth in their life. They might need to go out to sea to lay the eggs or they might need to swim up the river to lay the eggs, depending on which species we're talking about. And if you put a dam across the hour, you're blocking off that road. So uh, that highway for the fish, so they can't get up or down and they can't complete their life cycle. Which, which makes it virtually impossible for them. So while they, you might put the, the dam in and the fish might survive for a short time, um, over time they won't be able to have their babies, their babies won't be able to grow up, so it can affect them that way. So that's probably the biggest thing. The other thing is, you, is when you put a dam in, you're changing the river flow. So um, you change the natural patterns that happen with the flow when the flow goes up and goes down naturally and you end up blocking that off. And they might, if it's for water supply, it might just take a lot of the water out for other uses. And that reduces how many places there are in the hour for the, um, the fish to live. Yeah, so pretty big problems, yeah, from a dam. Yeah, my experience with dams, uh, we we have a dam in our Mahitahi Awa, which is over the hills from our um, Tehuere. And what you notice, and it goes back to um, cultural monitoring or perception, you know, 
where the dam sits uh, and, and the water sits, sits still, uh, you know, as the river, the flow of the river has been changed. So downstream from the dam, uh, the, the river is noticeably different than the uh, further upstream where the water is coming from the hills as opposed to where water has been fed in um, from the dam itself. So it affects, I believe it affects the health of the, of the awa itself. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about where our electricity comes from. You might want to do some research to find out whether your electricity mostly comes from a renewable source like hydro, the dams that we're talking about, or whether it comes from something else. And what's been done to try and reduce the impacts of that process? So for some dams, they, they build in um, pathways for fish um, and they collect spawn and all sorts of things to try and, and help out those creatures. But do some research and find out what's being done in your area and whether there might be something more that can be done to help out the hour to keep it healthier because once a dam is on there as Anna and Lois say it, it does affect the health so it's another good reason to reduce the amount of electricity we use as well because it all has an impact okay we are now up to our last question quality questions this morning thank you very much Southern School you've really thought about those question number 10 please hi my name's Holly and Lewis, how did you become a carver and why do you like working with the Paco? Paco. Uh, um, so I come from, um, my ancestors have been carving stone for thousands of years. Uh, they came to Aotearoa around 800 years ago or 1280 AD. They, they brought their stone carving with them and applied it to the local stone. And one of those stones was Pākohe um, from the top of the South Island and in particular Te Hoere. Um, so our, uh, my, my, my ancestors have been carving um, Pākohe and, and, and stone uh, ever since they arrived uh, on this land. Um, for me, um, my, my koro, my grandfather, he used to live in the Marlborough Sounds and he used to walk along the beach and pick up the little parkway stone flakes, the remnants of our ancestors. So we, when they used to work their stones, they'd leave behind little waste flakes and he'd pick them up and he used to talk about how the old people left them behind. Um, I went and I collected up all of his flakes and that, um, that was the big um, inspiration for me um, to continue that mahi, to continue that work of, of my ancestors. So I just started um, picking up the, the little bits of pākohe and taking them home and um, started getting tools to grind and shape them and drill holes in them, and I just progressed from there. Um, and why I like pākohe is because of its how special it is to our area. So, um, you know, my iwi, my tribe, Ngāti Kuya, have lived in the area since we arrived from the Pacific Islands. So um, being, we've always had this connection with the stone. You know, we traded it out across the wall of the iwi of Aotearoa, but we've remained here as the kaitiaki of the stone, the kaitiaki of our awa, of our rohi, of the area. Um, but yeah, in particular, the stone. So when I carve the stone, um, it's not just um, making carvings to so they look nice. 
that's a cool part of it, but also it's about like incorporating the kōrero of Pākuhi, you know, that it was used by our ancestors. And so for me, it's almost like a, um, a you know, something that you can learn from as well. So when someone wears a Pākuhi, um, they can, you know, someone will say, you know, oh, what kind of pōnami was that? And you'll say, oh, no, actually it's um, Pākuhi and it comes from Te Hoere and you can keep going and talking about our ancestors. And so... That, that's why it's special to me, and 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 that's how I started carving. So, kia ora, awesome question. Kia ora, thanks, Lewis. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't already, to watch the video where Lewis shares more about Pākoi, and you can see some of the tonga that he's created. Very skilled and amazing to see that really hard stone. And I learned on the field trip that it's harder than Pōnamu. And we know lots about Pōnamu because lots of people wear it, but we don't know so much about Pākoi. So it was a real privilege to find out more about that and its connection to that area. So kia ora. Thank you, Lewis. And thank you, Anna, for your awesome answers this morning. We're now going to open it up for a few more minutes um, to anyone listening and, of course, to our speaking school if you've got some extra questions that have cropped up after our discussion this morning. So if you've got questions, just pop down to the bottom of the screen and you can open up the chat pod. It's a little chat bubble at the bottom and type in your questions there. Um, we'll only have a few minutes because we've already had a chunk of time this morning and we've got our next web conference tomorrow if you want to add questions then as well. So we've got questions like, what is the history of your awa? What are the traditional uses of your awa? So those are things that you can find out specific to your area. Um, and I'd encourage you to do that after this web conference to get a real connection with your awa, find out more about it. So we've got any, any questions cropping up this morning? You can type those in. Can't see any questions at the moment. We'll give people a moment to type them in. Okay, thumbs up if you've got no questions, you're happy. You want to join us again tomorrow maybe for some more questions or answers i'm not sure can you hear me i can yes can you hear me i can i can hear you yeah i we've lost connection here so we will exit at this point but thank you so much kia ora no. it has been fabulous the students have learned so much but we have lost um connectivity from this end so we can't hear you, but we can see oh, no. you. So thank you. And um, kia ora, it's much appreciated, Anna and Lewis. The students have been writing notes <laughs> frantically. Awesome. And they've learned so much. Thank you very much thank indeed. Bye-bye. Thanks for your, your great questions this morning. And thank you to our listening schools. Great to have you with us this morning. And you can all unmute and say a big... Goodbye. Ka kite. Well done, guys.
I hope you have a great day and I hope you can join us tomorrow for another web conference. But yep, feel free to unmute. Kakite. Fantastic. Brilliant. Hey, have a great day and good luck with restoring your own. So clearly, we're saying goodbye. That brings our learning web conference to a close. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.